Hello, friends. I want to put two thoughts together for you and then spend the next 30 minutes in this Your Daily Drive podcast of talking about them. The two thoughts are hope and victimhood. Let me give you a good sentence to help you get your mind around these two concepts of hope and being a victim. Living in hope while resisting the temptation of victimhood can be the hurt person's most significant struggle. Hope is vital when bad things happen to any of us. Too often, legitimate victims place their hope on the wrong things, even if it's anger or revenge. Been there, done that. All of us have been legitimately victimized by someone many of us have resorted to sinful anger or revenge as a solution to what has happened to us. It is a thing. Anger and revenge is are, are two in a collection, a large collection of inferior hopes. There's no satisfaction in that. These inferior hopes, inferior hopes, by the way, do not have to be wrong. There are inferior hopes, and I'm going to talk about those. They're not like anger and revenge. They're not sinful, but they are still inferior. And they do not have to be wrong, but they are not redemptive. False hope never provides what you need. Thus, what happens to many victims like me, like you, we can embark on a journey of ever-changing hopes. Until finally we find the right, the one right answer. Well, I was one of those victims, and so I want to talk about this complex idea that does have several layers to it. As I bring together two thoughts, victimhood and hope, I want to talk about some unbiblical, unbiblical hopes and then some sub-biblical hopes. They're not necessarily wrong, but they are not redemptive. And of course, you know what the one right hope is, and that is placing our hope, the object of our faith, in God Himself. Welcome to the podcast. You're listening to Your Daily Drive. I am Rick Thomas, and if you want to read what I'm sharing with you, I would, I would love for you to do that. Go to our website, rickthomas.net, N-E-T dot net, and look for this article, Reflective Study on Victimhood and the Need for Hope. It is a complex podcast, and I hope it makes sense to you. I hope it is helpful. And then, as always, for those of you who are discipling others, well, you're discipling a victim, you're discipling a person who has been hurt. Again, we all have. And so this would be an excellent resource for you to have in your toolbox. I got a note from Nina. Uh, she said this, wow, wow. Those are her words, not mine. Wow, wow. Keeping this article, the root of so much incorrect motivation, needing to let this think it, sink in. Thank you. And signed, Nina. The article that she was talking about is the danger of pleasing God. That is also on our website, and we do. It does happen that we our, our motivation for holiness, our motivation for obedience, can can get twisted up inside our minds, and we could we could have the wrong motivation. And there is a danger if if you're trying to please God for the wrong reasons. And so Nina read this 
article, and she said, wow, wow. Uh, what she's going to keep that? She's going to keep that one in her toolbox as well. And so we would love to stuff your toolbox full of helpful resources. And again, one of those is this one here: a reflective study on victimhood and the need for hope. Now there is a spiritual element to the problem of finding the right hope, albeit it's mysterious and subjective. One way you may think about this is by asking, how much is God working behind the scenes helping you to find the right hope? And again, I know what I'm laying out before you at the top of this podcast is mysterious and subjective because we cannot, I can't answer the question about how much God is working behind the scenes of your life. I can't answer that question satisfactorily. And so there is a spiritual element to this problem of finding the right hope. Now, what I do know is that there is an interplay between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. In fact, you could, you could put those two concepts in, in a box, sovereignty and human responsibility, a box that you can't see inside of. They are in there, but you're not quite sure how they work. Christians are in a relationship with God. We're not robots with no free will. Now, admittedly, I don't understand this interplay. I don't understand what is inside those two concepts inside that box that I cannot see inside of. Because to think about God's sovereignty and and my responsibility and my relationship With him, it takes me to the limits of my mental capacity. Each time I I get to that mysterious spot with the Lord, I see a sign that says, Stop! Go no farther. The wise recourse for you and me is to obey the rules of sovereignty. Here, Here are the rules of sovereignty. Stop! Trust! Rest! Those three things. Those are the rules of sovereignty. You must know that you cannot know all that you want to know about God's role in your life or your responsibility to cooperate with Him. What you do know is that there is something very different from how God works and how you operate. He's sovereign Lord, and you are not. And so as you think about this idea of victimhood and your need for the right and proper hope, there is a spiritual element to it, but it is mysterious and subjective. So you rest as much as one redeemed but fallen soul can rest when pondering the interplay between the finite and the, and the infinite. Still, you wonder... How much is God guiding you through the corn maze of life? Though he permits you to make decisions, human responsibility, he is the author, sovereignty, writing a narrative that is leading you to the hope you must have to survive. Now, in theology, we call this journey through the corn maze, we call that progressive sanctification. That is the macro view. That's the aerial view as you look down on the corn maze. But when you go back into the corn maze of your your life, it's mission critical. 
that you rest in knowing that that you submit your best decisions to God's ultimate guidance. The writer in Proverbs was poking at this in 16.9. He said, The heart of man plans his way, human responsibility, but the Lord establishes his steps, uh, their sovereignty. And so let me ask you some questions as you think about the first part of this podcast that's titled A Reflective Study on Victimhood and the Need for Hope. In what way do you struggle with God's sovereignty and your responsibility to cooperate with him? That's question one. Question number two, what were some of your inferior hopes, sub-hopes, before you found the your ultimate rest in God as the true object of your faith? What were some of those inferior hopes that, that you rested in? I'll give you a few ideas in just a moment. Then number three, what were some of the things that the Lord did to rest your false hope from you as he was teaching you to trust him exclusively. Now, as he's resting these false hopes from you, how did you respond to the scalpel and the plow as he tilled your soul to bring redemptive fruit? I'm thinking of John 12, 24. You know this verse well. Jesus said, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit, and that's why I'm asking you, how did you respond to the scalpel of the Lord, the plow of the Lord, as he was tilling your soul to bring redemptive fruit, as he was unhooking you from false or inferior hopes so that you can find true rest in him? And so my first point here is that God is in this, but that is a mysterious and subjective argument, and I admit that. Trusting God is an imperfect science. Every person places their hope in the wrong things, especially their early hopes. I'm talking about your childhood. You could say that your your hope is always evolving until you make it to the Lord, your ultimate aspiration. I trust God is your ultimate aspiration. And so what I don't want you to do is to beat yourself up because of your growing but imperfect, your evolving but imperfect relationship with the Lord. Embrace it. We're all in that boat. That's like a five-year-old who's frustrated with being a five-year-old because he's not a 25-year-old or a 35-year-old. No, 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 you're growing. You're, you're, you have an imperfect relationship with the Lord. We are not entirely sanctified, but that's okay as long as you are evolving. Embrace it. Most of us begin our journey with God poorly as we go from false hope to false hope until we find the Lord. For example, when I was a child, I latched on to many things that became my hope. I did this because, well, one, I, I was not a believer. Two, I was, I was immature, and I was, I was sovereignly dependent on others to do what I could not do for myself. My early hopes were very much human a fallen human at that, so I trusted my parents to guide me. I needed my parents' help. I also had other authorities in my life, like my teachers, and I, I, I wanted to find hope in them. These folks were, were supposed to be my, my salvation, and I'm using that term in, in, in the loosest sense here. 
Now, here's the question. Was I wrong to depend on my authority figures as a youngster? Well, no. That's, that's self-evident. Of course, it would have been great if my parents had, had stepped up to the responsibility of leading me well. I wish they had told me that, that I had a limited and fallen role in my, that they had a limited and fallen role in my life, that they were not the ultimate authority. They were the ones who were guiding me to the Lord. No, I wish they had stepped up and told me those things, but that's not how it went for me. I wish they had told me that, that God has exclusive rights and control over my life and that until I fully submitted to him, I would never be happy. No, they didn't, they didn't do that. And so let me ask you a few more questions. What authority figures let you down during your childhood? And here's follow-up. What were, what were some of the lingering effects of those early disappointments? And maybe you want to add a second question here. Those first two questions are part of one set, so maybe you want to ask ask another set of questions here. Number two, do you continue to struggle with these things from your childhood? If you do, how many years has it been as you reflect on your childhood and the disappointment of the authority figures in your life and how they let you down and how you put your hope in them and the victimization of that, which is all legitimate, Well, how many years has it been, and you still struggle if you do? Number three, what does your struggle, ongoing struggle I'm talking about now, reveal about you and your relationship with God? You see, my parents did me a disservice. They not only failed in teaching me these deeper, albeit practically transforming truths about life and relationships and ultimate hope, but they failed in their limited, fallen responsibility of stewarding their call to parent me to God. You could view parents like couplers or connectors that facilitate, that that help you. They guide you. They are not your ultimate hope. But when you do parenting correctly, what, what you do is you lead the child to their ultimate hope. No, my parents did not do that. Even in their limited and fallen responsibility, they did not steward their call to parent me to God. They dashed my hope in familial and authoritative structures. They obliterated any reasonable human hope that I should have had. Their collective failures at parenting, at stewarding, at training, leading, shaping a child, it sent me reeling and scurrying to find hope in in whatever I could hang on to, even if if it were a, a few thin threads that would carry me from childhood to adulthood. And so my, my parents failed me, and other authority uh, individuals failed me. And so my scurrying and reeling, it led me to another hope, another false one. It was my new salvific strategy, a very odd one. It might sound on the surface, but I trust it will make sense. My new hope was isolation. I isolated myself from the horrificness of my early childhood. Can you hear the self-reliance as I was trying to get away from the horrificness? And so isolation became my salvation. This season was the first time that I felt the double sting of anger and victimhood. 
a deadly duo. The television became one of my escapes. Long walks in the woods. There were other pseudo-attempts to hide in plain sight, and it only deepened my dysfunction while entangling me into the intricated complicatedness of my mind. That's a that's a quote from John Donne, one of my favorite poets. He he said, "You you can Google this. I won't have the the uh, translation. I won't have the uh, I won't be able to recite it accurately." But he talked about the intricated complicatedness of my soul. I got tangled up in my own mind. By the time I was fifteen, my strategy had landed me in jail. Here's a few assessment questions for you to think about. Number one, if your parents failed you. More than normal parents do. I don't want to set a standard here that any parent parents perfectly because that's not true. But if your parents failed you more than normal parents do, what strategies, what tactics did you employ? Like me, isolation, for example. So you could feel a sense of hope. Number two, if the Lord was not your strategy, what were some of the consequences for bouncing from one lousy hope to another? And then number three, is Christ your ultimate hope now? Now, I you would think that five days in solitary, in jail, would be a wake-up call for anyone, but not me. My stubbornness, I'm collecting sin issues now. Not only am I a legitimate victim of some very poor parenting, but now I'm stubborn and I'm rebellious. And so my stubbornness and rebellion and victimhood, uh, now it's a deadly trio that were at an all-time high. The accumulation of disappointments from others can bind you to personal responsibility, and I'm sorry, can blind you to personal responsibility. And all sober self-awareness, which is, which is worse when there is a trace of legitimacy to your claim as a victim. And that is a huge problem when you're helping someone that's entangled as I was, because you will find a trace of legitimacy in their complaint. Job had a trace of of legitimacy in his complaint, and that's a level of complicatedness that you have to factor in to your soul care. The burden of my five-day stint in the slammer, it did motivate me to make a slight autocorrection. Regrettably, it was not God who became my hope. It was only a slight autocorrection. I knew that I could not keep on doing what I had been doing, which would only lead to similar results. So I shifted from a life of crime to the life of a, here's another false hope, a hard worker. I use my God-given work ethic to find significance. I've always been a hard worker. Sometimes people say, wow, Rick, you do a lot. And that's, that's true. It is true. But is it hard? No, this is, just who, this is just who I am. This is how God made me. You see, I wasn't handsome. And so girls were never an option for me to place my hope to find significance. I was not intelligent. And so finding acceptance through academics, well, that was out too. I had one shot, which was to double down on my insatiable desire to fill my love cup by becoming a hardworking teenager, and it worked. My newfound hope, inferior hope, was in my ability to perform for applause. 
you remember what I said at the top of this podcast? I talked about these victims embark on a journey of ever-changing hopes until they find the one right answer. Well, you, you hear this journey of ever-changing hopes that I went through, and so now I'm a hardworking teenager who is a former jailbird. Let's index forward 10 years. I found Jesus. I was 20, I'm, I'm 25 years old now. I found Jesus. Guess what? I brought my hardworking self-reliance into my fundamentalist culture, my fundamentalist Christian culture. I was ready-made to be a legalist. I, <clears throat> I went from zero to super spiritual in, in 60 seconds. I was head and shoulders above my fundy colleagues because I had a more expansive list of rules and preferences and practices that put a super shine on my holiness. It was inevitable. I became a preacher. My love cup runneth over. You, can, you, can you hear a problem here? Before I go any further, let me ask you a couple questions. Paul talked about bringing your former manner of life into your salvation experience, which I just articulated for you. He said that in Ephesians 4.22, that we have a former manner of life that we bring into our Christian experience. So I brought my, my work ethic, my self-reliant work ethic, my false hope into my Christian religion. And I'll get into just a moment of how dangerous that became. But what perceived good thing did you bring into your relationship with God that turned into a bad thing? Because people would look at hard work and say, well, that's not a bad thing. We must work. That's what we do. Don't eat. I mean, don't work, don't eat. Well, yeah, you can spin it that way. But my question is, what perceived good thing did you bring into your relationship with God that turned into a bad thing? Number two. I brought my work ethic into my salvation experience and blended it into a legalistic subculture of evangelicalism. What was the result of your repackaged former manner of life? That former manner of life that, that you don't want to bring into your salvation experience, but you do, and you repackage it, and if you're really blind to it, you can spin it like I did and, and be righteous. Put the super shine on your holiness. Number three, have you worked through the dysfunction of that process? How did you do it? If you're still struggling, still lingering, still attached to your past, if we can help you, please let us know. And so we've indexed forward 10 years from jail. I was 25. Let's index forward 10 more years. The Jesus that I found at the cross when I was 25 took me into the wilderness and beat the tar out of me for a decade. Now, I say this with all respect and all gratitude now, though that is not how I initially thought about those devastating disappointments with God. I went to Bible college to gain a theological education, and the Lord tossed me into the crucible of suffering to burn the residue of my inferior hopes out of my soul. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that he's finished with me yet because he's not finished yet. But when God does realign you, it does place you on the right rail. I've had many inferior hopes. Some of them happen with the natural course of life, parental expectations, school teachers, Others you stumble upon, which usually has something to do with your strengths, your, your self-reliance, like work or beauty or intelligence or social aptitude. 
Some of these things make you a victim, a legitimate victim, like bad parenting. Others are because you chose them, like my work ethic, but either ignorantly or willfully, they became yours and you embraced them. But either way, none of them satisfy. Even the most stubborn person who has spent decades dulling his conscience so that he can feign happiness still knows there's something amiss down in the depths of his soul. Even the right religion does not help if you haven't entirely worked through your former manner of life that you trucked into your relationship with the Lord. For some like me, it was a it was a couple of tractor trailer loads of fallen habits that I brought into my experience with Jesus. And this is where it becomes dicey because you can place your hope in the right person, Jesus, and get a different outcome from what you expected. And so let me ask a couple of more questions. What are some of your disappointments with God? How, how aware are you of this problem? The way you can tell if your disappointments are toward God is if you were, or if you are, angry with Him because you didn't get what you wanted. Every Christian has had disappointment after God regenerated them. What aspect of this tension has more control over you, hope in God or your disappointment as a Christian? Which one has more control over you? At the heart of this tension are your intellectual understanding, and practical application of biblical suffering. That's at the heart of this tension that I'm talking about. Now, I call this a theology of suffering because that language fits the issue the best. You could call it God and your suffering, a theology of suffering, theos logos, the study of God as it pertains to your suffering, which is the proper note that you're looking for to address your disappointment as a believer Most Christians are weak in this area, and you will know this by how they respond to the things they don't like. The most proper alignment that you can make when you're struggling with the disappointments in your life as a Christian is honestly read Hebrews 11 and place yourself at the most acute crisis point in that passage, in that chapter. And then compare your reaction to your disappointment with how those folks of the faith responded to God and responded to others when things went sideways for them. One of the most vital things you will ever do after God regenerates you is to bolster your understanding and practice of suffering. If you don't do this, you will continue to swirl in Christian mediocrity while making a case for why you are correct, why God is wrong. Everyone has experienced victimization, and no believer should ever dismiss the hurts of others as a trivial thing. But there is a problem. When the legitimacy of your victimness becomes your controlling identity, you're on the precipice of blindness. And from there is a short step to a rationale that will be hard to change. The title of this podcast is A Reflective Study on Victimhood and the Need for Hope. I have just a couple of more questions for you, and, and then we will, then I'll wrap it up. If you're willing, I would love for you to describe your hope in God. 
and talk practically about how it stabilizes you daily? Would you find someone where you can have this conversation? And as you have heard uh, it, throughout this podcast that, that I've, I've added several assessment sections in this article here. And, and so I would love for you to take appropriate time to answer them. I, I don't know how many questions there are. There's three, there's six, there's nine, there's 12, there's 15. There's 15 questions that I've asked you throughout this podcast. Would you take the appropriate time to to answer them. And if you're struggling with some of the things that I've shared with you, will you work through? The first thing I want you to do is to work through those questions. And then the second thing I want you to do is to find a competent and courageous friend who will that you can share your thoughts with, and they will help you to walk through this. Now, I also have a link here to the topical index on our website. And that topical index, it will take you to all of our articles. And you can spend months and years studying those articles, and they will serve you well. I will also encourage you to get the book that really communicates the heart of what I'm sharing with you here. And that's my book called Suffering Well, How to Steward God's Most Feared Blessing. It is, it's an autobiographical journey through the book of Job, and it will serve you well. Please take this article here, a reflective study on victimhood and the need for hope. Pray through it. Read it as many times as you need. Find a friend and you all talk about it. Thanks for listening. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net. 